Let's begin. We have been going through church history and theological equipping class this whole semester. Last week, we looked at the Council of Nicaea, and today we're going to do our first uh, major player. One of the things we'll do throughout this next year is as we get to a person in church history, a church history figure who is big enough, right, their their influence is so massive, we will spend a whole lesson uh, looking at that person. And so today, I'm very happy to look at Athanasius. I love Athanasius. He is one of the top two, three figures of church history who has shaped me personally. I wanted to name our son Athanasius, and my wife said no. So we didn't name him Athanasius. Uh, But it would not be much of an exaggeration to say that Athanasius saves Christianity. Obviously, we know God is sovereign over his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But Athanasius, in his day, stands against the world. In fact, that's the, the kind of epitaph that's, that's connected to his name, Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. We had the Council of Nicaea that we looked at last week, and then though that appeared to be this great day of victory for the church, uh, that the, the beautiful truth that the Son is eternally equal to the Father, he's eternal, co-equal, uh, co-eternal, the world will fall into Arianism soon after the council, and Athanasius is going to spend his whole life fighting for the truth of the Council of Nicaea, fighting for the truth that God the Son is not a created being, he is God. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. He's gonna be exiled five times throughout his life for standing for that truth, the truth of the Trinity. He's gonna fight heretics. He's gonna fight several emperors. And by the end of today, we'll get to see kind of the results of his life, of his fighting for this truth. But He was born in the country of Alexandria, right at the turn of the fourth century, 290, 98 AD. uh, Alexandria, where he's born, is one of the most prominent cities in the Roman Empire. It was the center of trade. It was the center of manufacturing. It was the center of food. It was called the breadbasket of the empire. And it was the center of culture. Uh, It was a very diverse city. Think New York or think London. And it produced incredible thinkers, incredible philosophers, incredible theologians. In fact, there's a quote from a fourth century historian that says if a doctor wants to prove his credentials as he goes about the world practicing his medicine, all he has to do is say he was educated in Alexandria and then no one would doubt him. And it was also a major center of Christianity. Uh, The church in Alexandria is one of the five main churches, one of the most uh, highest held esteemed churches of the early church, Jerusalem, Antioch, Rome, uh, and Alexandria and uh, Constantinople, the new empire. So that's where Athanasius is born. We don't know a whole lot about his early life. We know he was born to pagan parents. Uh, His pagan mother wanted him to get married. He said no. She set up a time for him to meet with this kind of famous philosopher in his day. And uh, after meeting with Athanasius, the philosopher went back to the mother and said, don't trouble your son anymore. You can't control him. He's become a Galilean. He's follow, he follows the Galileans. He had become a Christian and he would soon after that convert his mother. They would both be baptized by the bishop in Alexandria, whose name was Alexander. We looked at him last week with Zach. And soon after that, his mother died. Uh, his father's not really in the picture. And Alexander, the bishop, kind of adopts him as his son, takes him under his wing when he was still a really young man. He would train him, disciple him. He memorized the scriptures, Athanasius did, as a young man. In fact, Gregory of Nazianzus, who's a great theologian that would come kind of after Athanasius, said this, Athanasius meditated on every book of the Old and New Testament with a depth which no one else has ever reached with even one of them. 
He knows the whole Bible better than anybody knows one book of the Bible. Perhaps a bit of hyperbole, but you get the idea. In fact, if you were to look at Athanasius's writings, if you were to footnote every time he either quotes the scriptures or references the scriptures, the page would just be all footnotes, right? There'd hardly be any text because he is constantly uh, referencing the scriptures. He's consumed with the scriptures. And Alexander would ordain him as a young man to be his deacon, kind of his sidekick, his scribe. Back in the day, it's, deacons were a bit different than how they are uh, today. You essentially think kind of Robin to his Batman, if you will. In fact, most scholars will say as Alexander, the bishop is writing theological letters, even as he's debating in the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius is kind of the brains behind those arguments. In fact, a lot of people think he actually wrote himself the letters and Alexander just kind of signs his name to it. Uh, so that is his, his early upbringing. He's quickly taken under uh, the, the discipleship, the council of the Bishop Alexander, and then when he's still a young man, when he's in his 20s, the heresy that we looked at last week, the Council of Nicaea breaks out. Arius, the heretic, is from Alexander or Alexandria. He's in their own backyard, and he's the one who begins to minimize the mystery, as we've said, this, this heresy that the son, the Bible says the son is begotten, therefore he must have come into existence. He's not eternal. There was once when he was not, was the famous saying of Arius. And so that begins to spread. And a great summary uh, that Zach pointed out last week is imagine there's a hard line between God the creator and all of creation, everything else. And the question is, where does the sun go? Where does the S-O-N sun go? And Arius said, he goes below the line with the creatures. And so that heresy begins to spread and kind of phase one of the battle is kind of like ancient Twitter, just letter writing, you know, both everyone's scrambling, writing letters, sending them as much as they, you know, as fast as they possibly can throughout the empire. And then finally, Emperor Constantine, the new emperor gets involved. And he, the first thing he does, this kind of shows you a bit of Constantine's devout Christian faith. He tells Arius and Alexander, stop fighting uh, publicly over, quote, a matter of futile irrelevance. The son, you know, Jesus, is he God? Is he a creature? You know, it's irrelevant. Just quit your fighting, right? So that gives you a, a little bit of insight. Emperors, Constantine here and several emperors after him do not really care about theology. Their primary priority is I don't want fighting in my empire. I've got to worry about enemies on the outside attacking. I don't want in my main religion, people you know, at each other's throat, just stop the fighting, right? So that's his first, Constantine tells them, quit fighting, they don't. And so finally he calls a council. This is what we looked at again last week with Zach, the council of Nicaea. Athanasius would have been 27 years old. That's a year younger than me. 27 years old as he would have accompanied Alexander uh, as his kind of secretary to the council. And again, Zach gave an excellent lesson. Almost everybody instantly sees the danger in Arius's position, in Arius's heresy. They see the horrible danger. Yes, saying Jesus, our savior is a creature, that's a problem, but here's the challenge. What do you say instead? What do you say instead? How do you then describe the relationship uh, of, of the son to the father? How do you describe that in a way, and this is what Athanasius said is the biggest challenge, how do we describe Jesus' relationship to the father in a way that the heretics can't twist? Because remember, both sides are using the Bible. Both sides have their proof texts for their arguments, and so Athanasius is saying, you know, if we just say something like, he's the image of the invisible God, 
right? That's straight out of the scriptures. They're gonna say, well, we're all made in the image of God, so he's like us. See, they've just twisted the truth. And so Athanasius and Alexander and all those guys are saying, how do we describe it in a way that they cannot twist? And so they choose to use a word that's not found in the Bible, homoousios. He's of the same substance as the father, the same substance as the father. And so they said, this isn't a biblical word per se, but it collects the census of the scriptures. It's biblical. In the same way, the word Trinity that we use all the time is not, is not found anywhere in the scriptures, but it is the, the declared truth of the scriptures. And so that's what they say, he's of the same substance, not a creature, co-equal, co-eternal. And so after the council, everyone sees Arius's error, he's exiled. Arianism, the belief, is condemned. And it seems that there's this great day of victory, but... That will not be the case, as we'll see in a second. They go home, and three years after, Alexander dies, and Athanasius is elected the bishop of Alexandria at the age of 30. That's the lowest age you could be elected. Uh, And he's instantly in charge again. Two years older than I am, he's in charge of one of the most influential church, arguably the most influential church in the world. And the first thing he does is he travels around preaching the beautiful orthodoxy of the Trinity that there's a hard line between God and everything else and the sun goes above the line. So let me just give you a little bit of kind of uh, the gospel according to Athanasius, his kind of theological vision, what he's fighting for throughout his life. First of all, he would say, God created out of love, not out of necessity, just out of simple uh, love, creates us for fellowship with him. One of my favorite quotes, what would be the prophet Uh, what profit would there be for those who were made if they did not know their own maker? You were created to fellowship, to know, to be in communion with your creator. And this communion isn't, for Athanasius, this fellowship isn't just where we get our love, where we get our joy. It's also where we get our life, where we get our very existence. He would say very clearly, you were not only created by grace, you are sustained by grace. You continue to exist because God is keeping you existing. You're not eternal on your own. You are a created being. You only continue to exist because your creator is gracious to you. And so we're meant to live in this communion where we get our love, where we get our life from God. And so the essence of the fall, the essence of sin for Athanasius is turning away from that fellowship to death into corruption, turning away from our very life, from our joy towards the things of death and breaking off that fellowship with God primarily. That is what the fall is. You're turning away from this relationship that you were created for towards other things. And as you lose this relationship, you lose life and you cannot get it back. You cannot get it back on your own. The key question of salvation that we'll see over and over and over again, really throughout the whole uh, period of the early church is, can man rise up to God or must God come down to us? Can we rise up to God and save ourselves or does God have to come down to us? And Athanasius would strongly say, we cannot rise up to God. We are completely sinful. We have broken off this relationship and there's no way to get it back unless God comes down to us. And remember the Nicene Creed that we looked at last week that would have had uh, Athanasius' theology as its foundation. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation 
he came down. Or another way to say it, there's a hard line between God and everything else and the sun goes above the line and for us and for our salvation, he came to live below the line. The incarnation, what we celebrate in Christmas, this beautiful truth that the eternal God was made flesh and dwelt among us is the core of our salvation to Athanasius. This idea that we cannot save ourselves, God has to come down to us and what he's primarily doing is bringing us back into fellowship with the Father, bringing us back by adoption. So he would say the eternal God the Son by nature became a man that we might become sons and daughters of God by grace, right? We see that in 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. He brings us back into that fellowship with God again, not only where we get our love and our joy, but we have life restored to us as we're in fellowship with him. So let me read you uh, one of the most famous statements, not only from Athanasius, one of the most famous statements in all of patristic literature. He was incarnate that we might be made God. Let me stop there and explain. Don't freak out. Uh, don't freak out of that. So salvation uh, in Athanasius' day is fellowship with God. We've just said that. He is not saying we become God. He is not saying we become a God or anything like that. He is rather saying, similar to what Paul would say, that as we are in Christ, we share in the benefits of our Savior. So say it another way. You become righteous when you are united to the righteous one. You become holy when you are in Christ who is holy. It's not you yourself becoming something else. Rather, when you're in fellowship with your righteous savior, you now take on his righteousness. So in a sense, what he is saying is we share in the benefits of our God as we share in participation with him. God is salvation, Athanasius would say. So if he asked us, you know, what is salvation? And we respond with kind of the classic Protestant, Jesus Christ died for my sins. He would say, great, why? Is that, is that it? You just don't have any sins anymore? Why did he die for your sins? Oh, well, so I could be washed clean. Okay, great. Why? So that I don't have to go to hell. Okay, great. That's still a negative. Why? What, what is the goal of salvation? Oh, it's to you know, be in heaven where we might share in fellowship, a relationship with God forever. And he would say, that's it. That is the goal. Why is heaven great? God's there. Why is eternity great? God's there. This participation, this fellowship with God is the core of, uh, you know, again, Jesus, what do you see in John 13? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So again, don't forget of that. He just means he became incarnate to bring us into fellowship with God that we might share in the benefits of our Savior. But let me keep reading. He was incarnate that we might be made God. He manifest, and he manifested himself through a body that we might receive the idea of the invisible father. He endured the insults of human beings that we might inherit incorruptibility. Do you see the kind of divine exchange going on here? God is invisible, he became visible that we might have an idea of the invisible father. He endured the insults that we might inherit incorruptibility. In short, the achievements of the Savior affected by his incarnation are such a kind in number that if anyone would wish to expound them, it would be like those who look, gaze at the expanse of the sea and wish to count its waves. Therefore, it is better not to seek to speak of the whole, of which one cannot even speak in part, but rather to recall one thing and leave the whole to marvel at, for all are equally marvelous, and wherever one looks, seeing the divinity of the world, one is struck with exceeding awe. All of that to say, don't minimize the mystery. When you look at the beautiful 
unthinkable, mysterious reality that the eternal God the Son became a man that we might know God to bring us into fellowship with God. Don't minimize the mystery when our brains cannot comprehend. Rather, look at what we can comprehend and worship. And when we find that place where the realities of God are too big for our human brains to understand, simply marvel at your God. Don't try and explain it away like Arius did and fall into heresy as you're minimizing this mystery. Rather, let the mystery fuel you to worship. So that is what he is fighting for. Why does he hate Arianism? Why does he hate the heresy of Arianism? Not just because it's wrong, but because it obscures the beauty of the gospel. It obscures the beauty of the gospel. And so he's going to fight for that with his whole Life. This to him, the Trinitarian God is at the very heart of the gospel. We cannot save ourselves. God has to come down and save us. So he's elected bishop at 30, and immediately he has enemies on every side. Eusebius of Nicomedia, he is uh, the bad guy that, again, we looked at last week, who was kind of leading the Arius position in the Council of Nicaea. He is Constantine, the emperor's closest spiritual advisor which is going to be bad for Athanasius. He kind of has Constantine's ear. He's going to kind of lead the Arians uh, against Athanasius his entire life. Uh, The Arians will kind of rally against him, constantly bringing false charges. They called him the Black Dwarf, uh, which means Arians aren't only heretics, they're also racist. So stay away from them. Uh, And he convinces, Eusebius convinces Constantine to recall Arius out of exile only a couple years after the council. Bring him out of exile. Constantine demands that Athanasius reinstate him as a priest. And Athanasius says no, which is going to put him at odds with the most powerful man on the planet and several after him. By the way, one of the reasons why emperors in particular will hate Athanasius so much, which they will, we'll look and we'll see, is because he's the stick in the mud. He's standing for truth and he won't bend and they're trying to unify uh, the empire and half the time they're doing it, you know, trying to unify them around Arianism and Athanasius refuses to move. So he's just an annoyance. If we could only get this guy out of the way, surely everything would go well for us. And so emperors are going to hate him again for that very reason that he refuses to compromise with the truth that Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, refuses to compromise the truth of the Trinity. And so Arianism with Arius called back is beginning to spread quickly and they bring a whole bunch of false accusations against Athanasius to the point where Constantine actually calls a, a, a council where he ha- he's basically taking Athanasius to court. All these false accusations that he bribed his way uh, to become bishop, things like that. But the worst accusation was that there was a rival bishop named Arsenius uh, who Athanasius had had killed, that he had cut off his hands and had him killed. In fact, the Arians brought a box full uh, with two mummified hands in to say, look, here are the hands that Athanasius had cut off. He's a murderer. He needs to be exiled. And so Athanasius' defense, as he hears the rumors of this accusation, he actually goes up to Tyre where Arsenius, the supposedly murdered man, was hiding and he gets him and he brings him to the council and he makes him wear kind of long sleeves to cover up his hands and he puts a bag over his head. And when it's time for him to make a defense, he brings him forward and takes off the bag and has him show his hands to prove, one, he's alive, two, he has hands. And he sarcastically says, you know, where is his third hand? 
right? These, all of these charges against me are so ridiculous. Surely someone said he has a third hand that I've also cut off. And so he's uh, acquitted of those charges, but then his enemies quickly bring another charge that he threatened to withhold the grain distribution from Alexandria to the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire is going to starve because Athanasius is hoarding all of the food. Remember, Alexandria is the breadbasket of the empire. And on that charge, Constantine exiles him. So he's exiled his first of five. So just uh, a couple years after being elected uh, bishop, he is exiled uh, and there are riots in the street of Alexandria back in the day when you know, riots were primarily caused because people were straying from Trinitarian orthodoxy. So those days are gone though. So uh, he's exiled, he'd been exiled for two years until finally there's a shift in the empire. Constantine dies and the empire is given to his sons. The two main sons that will rule is Constance. They don't make it easy on us with the names. Constance in the West who likes Athanasius and Constantius who's in the East who loves Arianism. He does not like Athanasius. And so because uh, Constantine had died, uh, Athanasius is allowed to go back uh, to his, his uh pastorate his bishopric and again cheering crowds are awaiting there's all these long descriptions of every time Athanasius returns from exile it's like a, a conquering Roman empire is coming back into the city they're clawing just to get a look at their bishop right he was very beloved in his city but his return and his pastoring wouldn't last very long again Eusebius and the Arians quickly you know gather more false charges against Athanasius Constantius the emperor of the east who hates him calls a council that's only attended by Arians. It's only attended by the heretical enemies of Athanasius, and they bring more charges that he, you know, funds used for widows he used for himself, right? He's a prosperity gospel preacher is essentially what they were saying. Uh, and so, again, he's deposed by Constantius, and he's replaced with an Arian bishop, Gregory of Cappadocia. Uh, it replaces him and immediately incites riots against his supporters, and so he's exiled again just two years after he returns and begin to pastor again because of other false charges. He's exiled a second time that would last seven years. And it's not just, again, think about this, it's not just difficult times for one man. Athanasius has to go into exile. He's replaced by a heretic, one of the main churches in the entire world has a Arian heretic that says Jesus is a creature sitting in the place of authority who is inciting persecution against all of Athanasius' supporters. That's a pretty bad scene. And so Athanasius from exile, he's up in Rome for seven years, but he continues to pastor his people. We have some of his letters from this time of exile. He's writing to his people these festal letters where he was preparing them for Easter. I'll read one of them. Listen to this. Again, remember the situation. He's in exile. His people are being persecuted. Heretics are reigning over with the emperor's support, actively uh, inaugurating heresy. Listen to this letter. Let us make a joyful sound along with the saints and let no one neglect his duty, especially at this time. Let us consider as nothing the afflictions or the tribulations which the party of Eusebius has caused us because of their jealousy. But as God's faithful servants, we know that he is our salvation in times of trouble. For our Lord gave us this promise when he said, blessed are you when people insult you, and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Therefore, the more we are cornered in by our enemies, the more free we should be. 
Athanasius is not some sort of ivory tower guy who wants nothing to do with the people and just wants to think deeply about the things of the Trinity. This is a pastor whose heart is burdened that heresy is reigning in his people and he encourages them, be strong. The more they persecute us, remember the words of your Savior, the more free we will be. He's writing from exile, again, continuing to care for his people while fighting heresy. Arianism is growing quickly, spreading like wildfire, especially again, an, uh, an emperor is incredibly sympathetic to it and helping spread it. And so he writes one of his major works, Orations Against the Arians, right? Again, titles are more simple back then, where he essentially takes all of Arius's favorite biblical passages. Again, remember heretics use the Bible to try and make their uh, positions. After all, doesn't Jesus say, the father is greater than I, and passages like that, that can easily plucked out of context and used. And so Athanasius takes all of Arius's favorite biblical passages and shows how he's misinterpreting them shows how he's misinterpreting them wrongly. I put an example in your notes of Philippians 2, Paul talking about Jesus being humbled and then being exalted. And of course, you would think Arius would grab onto this quickly. How could God be exalted, right? Is any God, right? Doesn't he need to be a creature to be exalted? And Athanasius is saying, you're totally misunderstanding the incarnation. The incarnation, the truth, again, of Christmas is that Jesus, God the Son, has always eternally been God, but he also becomes a man for our salvation. While remaining God becomes a man, and Paul's referring to him as man here. You're just misunderstanding the truth of the Christian faith, the truth of the incarnation. And so everything boils down to, essentially, Arius misunderstands all these biblical passages because he doesn't know the whole story of the Bible. He looks at them in isolation. He doesn't take into context what God has been doing from Genesis to Revelation. And so because he takes it out of the story of redemption, he totally misinterprets it and spouts heresy as a result. Notice here, this whole controversy is about getting the Bible right. This is not just about who has the authority, who has the backing of the emperor or anything like that. It's about interpreting the Bible right. The same thing we would say today. It's about getting our ultimate authority right, the scriptures. And so Athanasius is showing him, you are out of line with the scriptures. You're drastically misinterpreting the scriptures. He also shows them, uh, shows that if Arius is right, salvation is impossible. Remember, can we rise up to God or must God come down to us? God must come down to us, Athanasius would say. And if it's not God coming down to us, we have no salvation. If it's not God coming down to us and bringing us back into fellowship with God, we have no salvation. How could a creature give us fellowship with God if he's not God? You see how it all ties together. It has to be God coming down. If Arius is right, we have absolutely no salvation. Only the Son of God, by his very nature, could make us sons and daughters by grace. That's what Athanasius would say. So again, it's not just about getting your definitions right. This is at the very heart of the gospel. So from exile, he's fighting against his heretics. He's shepherding his people seven years. And then after seven years, he's able to return because Gregory, the Arian bishop that was put in his place, dies. And Constance, the good, nice emperor from the West, advocates to the mean Arian bishop, Constantius, uh, in the East and begs him. And he allows Athanasius to come home. And then we have the golden decade, as it's called, uh, 10 years of uninterrupted ministry. This is just funny to say it that way. The golden decade, if he wasn't exiled for 10 straight years, but he does have 10 years where he's able to go and he's able to preach and he's able to minister and care for the poor and preach the truth of the Trinity and the gospel. And then his golden decade, his golden 10 years is followed by the darkest period, in my opinion, in the history of the church. 
The golden uh, decade is followed by, in my opinion, the darkest period in the history of the church. Constance, the good emperor, dies, and Constantius, the, the, the Arian bishop in the east, takes over the entire empire, the east and the west. And now that he has full power, he says, I'm finally going to solve this whole debate, this whole problem once and for all. And so the first thing he does is he denounces, he calls several councils and denounces the Council of Nicaea. That whole thing about Jesus being co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, that's all gone, that didn't happen, right? He denounces it, and then the next thing to do is he's gotta get rid of the stick in the mud. He's gotta get rid of Athanasius. There's this guy who refuses to bend about this council. He's been able to kind of strong arm other bishops, but Athanasius does not bend, so he's gotta get rid of him. So what he does is he sends imperial forces, he invades Alexandria with imperial forces, invades the church at midnight, Athanasius Church at midnight. They're holding a service at midnight, pretty devout. Uh, And as the imperial forces go in, Athanasius somehow, some miraculous way, escapes and goes for his third exile, which would last six years. He goes to the deserts of Egypt. He lives with monks there that kind of took him in, and it would last six years. And as uh, he's quickly gone, Constantius, the emperor, writes a public letter saying that Athanasius was a man who had come from the lowest pits and deserved to be killed 10 times over. And not only does he banish Athanasius, he banishes any bishop who's loyal to Athanasius. And again, he replaces Athanasius with another Arian bishop, George of Cappadocia, who again immediately incites violent persecution for anyone who would follow Athanasius. Any church member who loves their bishop, who loves the Trinity, immediately are persecuted violently. And so now in Constantius' mind, with Athanasius gone, with all of his supporters gone, he calls his own council where he calls all the bishops from the east and all the bishops from the west, except it's unlike the Council of Nicaea, we're not going to have this debate where we fight over what's actually biblical. He doesn't even let them meet. He says, Westerners, you stay here. Eastern bishops, you stay here. He has a pre-written creed that he says, both of you are going to sign. I've already written the creed. I've already written the decision. Both of you sign this. The problem is the creed is Arian. It rejects any language of the son being like the father. It's an Arian creed. And the Eastern bishops say no. And the Western bishops say no. And Constantius says, great, nobody's going home. Remember, there's not airplanes in their day. It takes months and months and months and months to travel to Constantinople, the capital, to stand before the emperor. And he says, great, every bishop in the world is here and you're not going back to your churches until you sign. And they wait and they wait and they wait months and they wait months, and especially the Western bishops who have much further travel as winter is coming, and it's just like today. I mean, millimeters of snow, that makes traveling difficult in the ancient days. And they wait, and they wait, and finally, the Western bishops give in, and they sign the Arian Creed, and as soon as the Western Western bishops do, the Eastern bishops do as well. They both sign the creed. They're allowed to go home, and in this moment, St. Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, says, the whole world groaned and was astonished to find itself Arian. And again, in, this, in my opinion, this is the darkest time in the history of the church. The Council of Nicaea has been denounced. Athanasius, all who support him, all who support Nicaea have been exiled. The emperor calls a council and forces everyone to sign a heretical creed. If you think times are dark now, imagine What is spreading like wildfire is the idea that Jesus is a creature and not God and that every popular pastor, every leader within the church has signed it and everyone who refused to sign it has been sent into exile. And it is in this time 
when Athanasius is in his third exile in the deserts of Egypt, where he gets his famous moniker, his epitaph, Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world, because in Egypt, in exile, he begins his most prolific time of writing in his entire life. In fact, more than half of his writings come from this uh, six-year period where he is fighting everyone, it seems. He's fighting, defending, writing, uh, defending the Council of Nicaea. He's fighting against the heretics. He's defending the son's equality with the father. He's defending the realities of the incarnation. Only the true son of God could save us, could bring us into fellowship with God. And not only is he fighting what's happening in his day, he also began to write anticipating future controversies that would all actually happen after his life. So he's fighting the battle that Jesus is God if you want to put it as simple as possible. That's the battle he's fighting. That battle, when it's eventually over with, when it's one and decided the next battle that's going to come up that we'll look at in the next few weeks is called the Christological controversy. How could Jesus be man? He's God, but then we begin to deny, well, he wasn't fully man. He was maybe you know, a man that God indwelt, or he was maybe God that became a man or something like that and didn't remain God. He just stayed man for forever. So that, those would be all the future controversies, and Athanasius looks forward and sees this. He has this incredible ability to anticipate future controversies, and he writes defending uh, controversies that haven't even happened yet. And so next, he looks at the full equality of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus has been denied as God, the next domino to fall is the Holy Spirit will be denied as God. He has incredible writings defending the equality of the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son. He's the first person to call the Holy Spirit homoousios with the Son and the Father. Again, hard line between God and everything else. And the Son goes above the line and the Spirit goes above the line. Again, same uh, salvation logic. And if the Son has to come down to save us, the Spirit has to come down to regenerate us, to convict us, to sanctify us. And if it's not God coming down, we cannot be regenerated. We cannot be sanctified. It's the same idea. So he, again, is the first person, Gregory of Nazianzus again says, Athanasius is the first person in the history of the church to beautifully display the reality of the Trinity that the Son is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, and the Spirit is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. Again, that's a controversy that's gonna go after his life that he's already anticipating. And then again, the Son's humanity. He's gonna answer questions. He's not God indwelling a man. Rather, the eternal God, the Son, became a man while remaining God. Both God and man, fully God, fully man. He'll answer questions like, how can God suffer if God is impassable? That was another question that would come up long after Athanasius. He begins to answer those questions. He suffers as man, not as God. He suffers while remaining impassable. Again, holding that mystery. Don't minimize the mystery. So he writes, anticipates, prolific time of writing during this incredibly dark time. And then finally, Constantius, the evil Arian bishop, dies. There was a great cheer, and then the person who replaces him is Julian the Apostate, who doesn't like Arianism or Christianity, and he wants to reinstate old pagan Roman religion. So right when you're excited, it's like, okay, another downer. But Julian, being very perceptive, looks out at the just constantly fighting church and says, you know what will destroy the church? Not exiling the bishops, letting them come back. Let's just let them all come back and let them fight and then it will all crumble, right? Fairly good strategy if you've been observing the past couple decades in Athanasius' day, they're just fighting very violently. And so he thinks, I'll let everybody back. He reinstates all the bishops who are faithful to Nicaea. Athanasius is allowed to go back to Alexandria. And Athanasius, being very perceptive, knows Alexandria is 
you know, has a key location right by the Nile. Most, most bishops would have been exiled in the deserts of Egypt and would have had to take the Nile River to go back home. And Athanasius quickly calls a small council with all the bishops of Nicaea. Now, there's another thing that's been happening this whole time that we haven't mentioned yet. Since the Council of Nicaea, people have been using terminology and confusing one another. There's been three main groups. There's Arius and there's Athanasius' group. Those are the main two that we're looking at. And there's another group of good guys, if you want to call them that, that are using different terminology than Athanasius and his guys, and they think they mean different things, and they don't. So I've listed those three groups. So there's the old kind of Nicene's, Athanasius. They're using the term homoousios that we've said over and over again. The son is the same substance as the father. And then there's this new group of good guys. We'll call them new Nicene's. They're the guys who will kind of take the torches later. They use the term Homoios katusion, the son is exactly similar to the father. Not similar to the father, that would be heresy. Exactly similar to the father, but they're using Greek different words to say the same thing, so they think they're both spouting heresy. So group one, Athanasius, looks at the other group and says, you have three gods. You don't have one god, you have three gods. This group looks back at Athanasius and says, you're modalist. They think homoousios means one person. You have one God and one person. You don't have the Trinity either. So they're fighting and fighting and fighting. And Athanasius kind of sees this, sees that they're talking past each other. So he calls this quick council with these two group of good guys. And he sits them down and he says, okay, we're going to do this revolutionary thing. We're going to listen to each other. Group one, what do you mean when you say the son is the same substance as the father? And he says, group two, be quiet. Explain. He says, did you hear what they just said? Okay, group two, what do you mean when you say the son is exactly similar to the father? Group one, be quiet, explain. Okay, you guys are saying the exact same thing. Do you see it? And they do. And so this huge fighting that had been happening for decades and decades and decades, I'm sure you've experienced, maybe not, uh, but I've experienced uh, fights with perhaps a spouse where you say things that you don't mean and you're just talking past each other and you have to do all this unraveling of, oh, I didn't mean that when I said this. That's essentially what's happening here. It's just like a good old marriage fight between two good guys and Athanasius finally shows them you're saying the same things. You both believe the reality of the Trinity. Now, use the same terminology and they do. They also decide to say that the Holy Spirit is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. They also decide to affirm that the Son became fully man. The Son has a human soul, and they agree, and they go home. And arguably, this is one of Athanasius' greatest accomplishments. Fighting and fighting and fighting for decades and decades and decades, unnecessarily because they were saying the same thing. Because Athanasius doesn't say, what camp are you in? But rather, he says, what do you mean when you say this? And they see that they mean the same thing. They see that they agree. And he says, okay, agree on the same words. Agree on the same terminology. And they send, he sends them home and he unifies an incredibly de-unified church that didn't need to be uh, disunified. So he sends them home. Uh, again, notice, unity must have truth at the center. There is no such thing as let's be unified though we totally disagree on truth. That's called fake unity. Unity must be around truth. And Athanasius says, you both believe in the truth of the Trinity, now unify around it. So he encourages them. Again, they go home and Athanasius goes home and again, everything seems great. And then Julian the apostate realizes, huh, 
my plan for the church to crumble didn't work because Athanasius just pieced all the broken pieces together. So he exiles Athanasius again, a fourth time, he says, that contemptible little fellow cannot be allowed to remain in Alexandria. Apparently, Athanasius was short. Everyone keeps making fun of how short he is. Uh, and so he sends him to a fourth, uh, an exile, basically right back to where he came, but that would only last one year. Julian the apostate would die and he would be replaced by Jovian, who favors Athanasius, likes him, allows him to come home, but then he would die a year later and he would be replaced by Valens, another Arian sympathizer who would again re-exile Athanasius. He must have just had a permanent home in a cave in the, or the Egyptian desert because he basically was there back and forth. But then as soon as he's re-exiled for a fifth time, five times he was exiled for his fifth time, uh, a rebellion breaks out and Valens wants to kind of stabilize Egypt so he sends armed guards to kind of escort Athanasius back to Alexandria, where he's allowed to stay for the rest of his years, which wasn't very long, but the final years were peaceful for Athanasius. He spends his final years, again, just pastoring and writing, again, anticipating future controversies. He actually is the first person in church history. He, again, as he prepares his people for Easter, sends a letter where he is the first one to list the 27 books of the New Testament to give us a closed canon. Remember, for the first couple hundred years, they're deciding, you know, or not deciding, they're, they're affirming this is scripture and this is not, as they have these books that they believe are scripture and which ones are authoritative. That's what they're trying to figure out. They don't determine it, but they're recognizing it. And Athanasius is the first one to say, in these 27 books alone, the teaching are the teaching of godliness proclaimed. None may be added and none may be taken away. So he writes, uh, affirming the biblical canon, just another fun fact about him, and then again, laying the foundation for the coming debates. He's an old man, he can see on the horizon these new debates are gonna come in about Christ's humanity, so he wants to help out the next generation, which he does significantly. Cyril of Alexandria is going to be the next one, the next hero of the church to come after Athanasius. And as a young man, he's born very shortly after Athanasius dies. And as a young man, he goes to, he spends his youth in the Alexandrian church reading Athanasius. And it's going to form him and he's going to be the primary one to fight the battle of orthodoxy and using mainly Athanasius' arguments to do so. In fact, uh, in the next, the third and fourth council that are all going to be around Christ's humanity, Athanasius is going to be used kind of as the benchmark uh, of those debates. In fact, Pope Leo, who is involved in that, says he defeats the, heris, or the, the heretics of the future in his own day. Nestorius, Eutyches, who will be the two main bad guys in the future, Athanasius already defeated them before he knew their names. So he's writing, setting up the future, and that eventually he will die on May 2nd, 373 AD, at the age of 75 at his funeral, Gregory of Nazianza says, his life and conduct form the ideal of a pastor and is teaching the law of orthodoxy. Eight years later, in the Council of Constantinople, the beautiful reality of the Trinity would be declared victorious and forever Athanasius would be considered the standard of orthodoxy. He never saw the great day of victory, but he fought the battle against the world that made it possible. Eight years after, he's die, after he dies, the great day of victory finally comes. An incredible life lived in the midst of absolute chaos. 17 years of his 46 years of ministry were spent in exile. And I would imagine, you know, as he has the scriptures memorized, that he comforted himself often with this uh, quote from, first, er, from John 15. These are Jesus' words. If the world hates you, 
know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would not love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. I imagine as he's being exiled over and over and over again for his belief that Jesus is eternally God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. He comforts himself with the very words of his Savior. If they hated me, they will hate you. And they will hate you because they don't know him who sent me. The reason they will hate you is because they don't understand the incarnation, what Athanasius sent his life, spent his life fighting for. So he fights for that beautiful reality that the sun comes down. He unifies, brings true unity to the church in his day, causing people who thought they were enemies to see that they were actually saying the same thing. He's the first to articulate the full trinity, including the Holy Spirit, is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. He sets up the church for future battles on the Holy Spirit and on Christ's humanity. He's the first to list all 66 books in our closed canon. Uh, He is an incredible man and you should love him and I love him not because he has this crazy biography where he faced all these persecutions and not just because he saved Christianity but because he shows the beauty of our king. Why is truth incredible? Why do we love theology? Why do we love the scriptures at Parkway? Because truth sets your heart on fire. And I think Athanasius is a phenomenal example of that. His heart was set on fire by the beauties of the Trinity and the reality that that beautiful Trinitarian God came down or sent, the Father sent his Son in the incarnation, sends his Spirit to sanctify you, to indwell you, to guarantee your salvation and to bring you into the eternal fellowship with him. Let me end with this quote by C.S. Lewis who loved Athanasius. He says this about his life. His epitaph is Athanasius against the world. We are proud that our country, England, uh, has more than once stood against the world. Athanasius did the same. He stood for the Trinitarian doctrine, whole and undefiled. And when it looked as if all of the civilized world had slipped back from Christianity into the religion of Arius, it is to his glory that he did not move with the times. And it is his reward that he now remains when those times, as all times do, have moved away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Athanasius. We thank you more that he spent his life declaring the beautiful realities of the gospel. I thank you, Father, that uh, we are inheriting what he fought for. I thank you that that is just uh, the reality anyone who, who has been saved can testify to, that we were far off. We cannot rise up to you. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. No one does good. No, not one. Yet, you who are rich in mercy, with the great love with which you loved us, sent your son. He came down to bring us back into the glorious fellowship that we were created for. I thank you for who you are, that you are faithful to us when we are faithless. We pray in your son's beautiful name. Amen.